right. Well, good morning. Well, this is a dangerous Sunday. Because if you don't like what I say, I've equipped you. So I'm going to ask you to just put those things down for just a little bit here. All right. Uh, if you... Uh, if you uh, have not had an opportunity to check out Thursday nights, you need to do so. Pastor Wayne uh, Barry, one of the pillars of this house, uh, he, he uh, has brought two just wonderful messages and they will continue to be over the next four weeks. And you can catch uh, the two that already been shared online. But if you have the capacity in your week to come on Thursday night, you will not regret it. Uh, really uh, encourage you to, to go back and listen to those messages, okay? Also, uh, have, you, have you given somebody a high five this morning? Now, if you don't know what, uh, why I'm asking that, uh, maybe you weren't here last week or you didn't hear the message, uh, I issued a challenge last week uh, called the High Five Challenge uh, because of kind of where we, not because of kind of, because of where we are uh, in, stri- in Scripture and, and with this series we're in. And essentially what it is, is uh, over these five weeks, we're going to take five days and spend five minutes in one of the five chapters of First John. And so that is our high five, our high five challenge. Now, you're probably going to fall on either one side of the coin. The first side of the coin would be, I didn't hear the challenge, or I heard and I forgot about the challenge, or I started and I messed up and I didn't complete the challenge. Maybe that's you and you're in that seat and you think, okay, well, I failed and I messed up, so oh well, it's over. Uh, nay, 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 nay. Okay, all right. Uh, Isn't that the trick of the enemy? That when you fail, it's over for you, right? No, you get to try again. We get to get back up on that horse and try again, okay? So this is a new week. Now, if you're on the other side of the coin where you said, man, I got that thing done. I did exactly, I did the high five challenge. I read all the chapters. Well, let me tell you, last week was the easy week. Last week was the easy week. The challenge is continuing to go back and do it again, go back and do it again, go back and do it again, and I'll tell you that you will discover something new every time you do. You see, the Word of God is alive and active. The Word of God has a lot to share, uh, to, 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 to share with us and is transformative in our lives. And so we want to redo and redo and redo and redo and re-go back and look at the Word, okay? Yes? yes. So we're going to continue uh, on, this, on this challenge. On November 20th, that will be the conclusion of this. And if you come to one of the staff pastors, they are going to have a special gift for you, okay? I'm not going to tell you what it is, but if you come and say, I've done all five weeks and I was faithful at it, uh, they're going to have a special gift for you. I don't know what the gift is yet. No, I do know what the gift is. I'm going to give it to a few of these and, and they're going to have it for you, okay? Does that sound good? Who likes to get a gift? Uh, yeah, God is, God is the best gift giver, right? Would you guys stand with me? We're going to read today, and at the end of this scripture, we're going to go ahead and give each other a high five. Here we go. Let's read. We know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in that person. But if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. 
Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or sister is still in darkness. Anyone who loves their brother and sister lives in the light, and there is nothing in them to make them stumble. But anyone who hates a brother or sister is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. They do not know where they are going because darkness has blinded them. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. High five. Father, thank you so much for your word. I thank you, Lord, that it gives life. I thank you, Lord, that we can celebrate what your word says and the learning that we can receive from it. I pray, Lord, that the words that come from my mouth today would fall to the ground and be forgotten, but your words would stay and change our hearts for all eternity and especially on how we treat one another. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, we're continuing in our series, God's Big Idea. And as I shared last week, if you've known me for any length of time, you know I can come up with some pretty grandiose ideas, and a majority of them, I believe, are actually bad. But, but God's ideas are always good ideas. God's ideas always lead to life and life everlasting. God's ideas are, are good ideas. And, and last week, uh, what we spent our time doing is lay, laying a foundation uh, of, uh, of 1 John uh, that came from the first chapter, which was God is light. God is light. And if you have completed the uh, high five challenge, you will notice that John weaves that theme through all five chapters of, of, of this letter. And so God God is light. There is no darkness in God whatsoever. There's no darkness in God whatsoever. And essentially, God's light does three things for us. The first thing that it does is it reveals truth. Next, it illuminates our path. And also, it's, it shows us our destination. God's light is important in our life. We are to be in the light, and the Word tells us that if we are in the light like He is in the light, then we will have fellowship and intimate connection with Him. And don't we want to have that intimate connection with this, with this Father? Yes, we do. We do want to have this intimate connection. And so as we continue on in our journey, I can't help but to pause for just a moment and give a very brief context with which we are reading uh, from, from 1 John. Um, and, and as I give this context, the reason I'm giving this context is because it's going to tie into where I feel like the Lord wants us to go, uh, go today. So John is written, 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John. The second and third book of John, the letters of, of John are written to individuals, written to people. But like Brian was saying that Paul wrote the letter to the Ephesians, John has written this letter to the churches. He's written this letter after Paul's letters to the churches. He's written this letter to, to, the, to the churches. And uh, the reason he is writing these letters to the churches is because the churches have fallen prey to some heretical teaching that's happening in the 
house. Teaching that was not of the, the Lord, not of the gospel, did not promote the gospel. And the primary religious sect that had kind of made its way, woven its way into the church was something called Gnosticism. Now Gnosticism at the very core is, is, is basically this. The first part is Gnosticism negated the supremacy of God as our creator. And the second thing is it refuted any claim of Jesus being our Savior. Those were the two core things. Now, there were some other things sprinkled in there, but at the core, these two things were taking place. And so you can understand that in the church setting, especially a gospel-believing church, this would be a problem because it goes in direct conflict to who Jesus said he was and the claim that God was our creator and we were created by him. And the only way that we can get to him is through Jesus Christ. And so John writes this letter to these churches so that they can be very clear and tell them this is not true, but what you have heard and what I am telling you is the truth. Now, there is a very distinct difference between Paul's letters and John's letter that's written here. And I'm going to talk about those differences in, in, just, in just a second. This past Wednesday was the best day of my week because I got to spend my Wednesday with this incredible group of women. This incredible, wonderful group of women. And let me tell you, Springhouse, I'm going to say this, uh, ladies, I told you this on Wednesday, and I'm going to, to, to say it in front of the congregation. Never negate how important your presence is in people's lives. Your presence in our lives is, is just means so much. And there are matriarchs of the faith pictured here. These ladies, some of them have been, have been with us as far back as the old uh, sanctuary Smyrna assembly and their fingerprints are all over the hearts of people who have traveled through here. Don't we love the mothers in this house? Don't we love the matriarchs of, of this house? And at this particular gathering, I had the, uh, the, the distinct privilege of having a conversation with Miss Jeannie Gibson, also a pillar of faith in this house. And it, with Jeannie, we were conversed, we were talking, and if you know Jeannie Gibson and you've had any length of conversation with her, you know you can't talk to Jeannie Gibson very long without her bringing up Mike. She didn't, she didn't talk very long without bringing up Mike because she loved her late husband, Mike Gibson. She loved him with every fiber in her being. She knew him. She knew him very well. Now, I knew Mike Gibson, and I've got some stories about Mike that I could share. I've got some experiences with Mike that I could share with you. But if you really want to know about Mike Gibson, you need to talk to Jeannie. Why? Because Jeannie walked with Mike. She had an intimate connection with Mike. She knew Mike's flaws and, his, and, his, and the things that were really great about Mike. She knew the whole picture of Mike. Jeannie loved her husband. John had a very distinct difference than Paul. Some of you know the story of Paul. Paul on his way to Damascus had an had a experiential experience with Jesus Christ, a conversion experience where once he was blind, now he could see. Saul persecuted and killed Christians. And because of this experience with Jesus Christ, it transformed his life and it changed his life forever to the benefit of all those who would believe after him. And I want you to know that an experience with the Lord can change the trajectory of your life. Yeah. 
An experience with God can change the trajectory of your life. But contrary to what Paul had going on in the letters that he wrote, John had a very distinct difference in the letters that he wrote in that he was not writing from a perspective of an experience alone. He was writing from an experience, he was writing from a point of view and perspective of a life lived and breathed and walked with Jesus Christ. John was walking from an experience where he felt the things that Jesus said. He saw the things that Jesus did. He, he, he practiced and put in place the things that Jesus told him to do. He was there when blind man Bartimaeus received his sight. John was there when the woman with the issue of blood touched his cloak and Jesus said, who touched me? John was there when the leper needed to be healed and Jesus healed him. John was there when the Pharisees came after him and berated him, talked bad about him, and came against him. John was there and saw how Jesus reacted in those situations. John was there when Jesus unjustly was dragged to the cross and nailed for you in my sin. John was there, and John was there on that glorious day when Jesus Christ rose again. John's perspective is a different perspective than Paul's. John's perspective comes from a life that was lived with the Savior. And so out of the abundance of what is inside John, he writes this letter. He writes his gospel. He writes the things that we read about. He comes from a testimony of knowing the way, the truth, and the life. And so John writes this letter with that perspective. John knew Jesus. And John writes in this letter uh, to the churches in chapter two, he says this to us. He says, we know that we have come to know him, that's Jesus, if we keep his commands. We, the church, know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. Now, some of us, unfortunately, have a disconnect when we read a scripture like this and we put the word commands and we fill in all of these things that are found in the Old Testament, which are the Ten Commandments and things like that. But these are not the commands that John is uh, suggesting here that we know Jesus by. There's a lot of commands that Jesus gives us in the Gospels. You can go back and read them there. There are lots of them, and among them are these. Love your enemies. Turn the other cheek. Do not judge. Forgive others. Remain in me. Settle matters quickly. Have faith in God. Among the commands that Jesus has for those who follow him, these are the ones that we, he asks us to follow. And there, there are many more that are written, but the Pharisees would come to Jesus and say, okay, I hear all of these things that you're telling us to do. Of the commands that you have given us, of the commands of the law, which two are the greatest? And Jesus would answer with this, love the Lord God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. The greatest commands, all other parts of the law hinge on these two commands. 
Love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. It stands to reason that the greatest command that anyone in this room has been given is to love. The greatest command, the greatest directive that we have been given in this life is to love, is to love, is to love. And so we're looking today at this chapter that John has written in his, in his letter, and we're examining the, examining the question, when, it is, when is it appropriate to love and when is it appropriate to hate? When is it appropriate to love and when is it appropriate to hate? Now, this week as I was wrestling with this, I went to the Lord and I said, Lord, I don't understand. There's something that's got to be in between love and hate. There's love and there's hate and there's something that's got to be kind of in, in between. Surely it just doesn't go from love right to hate. And the Holy Spirit of God said, that's not true. He said, anything that falls short of love leans into hate. Anything that falls short of love leans into hate. You see, we tend, because of the way that we pervert love, we tend to tie these massive emotions to love and to hate. And if we don't express ourselves in these emotions, we think we don't have either one. But in the reality that we live, love and hate are choices. Love and hate are choices. You choose to love. You choose to hate. And what I want us to understand today, and if you don't catch anything else I'm going to tell you today, I want you to walk out of here with this. You are never finished learning how to love. You are never finished learning how to love. You're never finished learning how to love. God is constantly working in us. He's working all of the self out of us so that we can be his grand expression of love to others. Go ahead and give me the spotlight. First John tells us, that if we hate a brother or sister, then we're not living in the light. If we even lean a little bit toward hate and say we're in the light, then we are a liar. But if we love our brothers and our sisters, then we are in the light like he is in the light. God is love. He is love and he is all love. I've had a friend for a little over 20 years. I have other friends too, but I have this one friend <laughs> for a little over 20 years. And um, early on in our friendship, uh, he was really dealing with an issue. And as he dealt with this issue, he decided that he did not believe that this particular issue was a sin. And so he decided to go to his, uh, his friends and the people who said he loved him, the Christians around him, and he said, hey, this is what I've decided and this is how I'm gonna live. And their response was to berate him, to tear him down, to reject him, and to walk out of his life. 
And for six months, for six months, I was his best friend at the time. For six months, I had no idea what he was walking through. And at the end of six months, when he finally broke down and he told me what he was walking through and what he had decided, I asked him, why did you wait so long to tell me? And he said, I was afraid of how you were going to respond. And I looked at him right in the eyes and I said, the things that you do do not define my love for you. I may not agree with the choice you have made, but I am able to remove that and put that behind me and continue to confer dignity to you as a person and a human being. One that God loves and treasures and wants to be in relationship with. And so for the next two years, I walked with this brother. We would, we, we and our group of friends, a, a different group of friends would go and, and have, go to movies. We would hang out. We would socialize. I don't remember one time in those two years ever bringing the issue up because when I looked at him, I made a decision to see him and not the issue. And at the end of two years, the issue, the sin broke him. And he got to a place where he was in a very, very, very dark and broken state. Sin will always bring you to a broken state. And when this brother got to that broken state, he reached out for help. And whereas before he waited six months to tell me this was an immediate call to me, why did you call me? because I believe you love me. I believe you love me. Here's the thing, guys. Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. If Jesus is the way, I don't wanna be in his way. If Jesus is the way, I don't wanna be in his way. We are not called to go into people's lives and shine a massive light on everything that they have done wrong. We are not called to go in and be ambassadors to smack people down and say, you've got a bigger issue than I do, so you must not be worthy of the light. God has created us to stand in the light and love one another. We are supposed to be in the light and love our brothers and sisters. Love tells me that it is patient and it is kind and it does not keep a record of wrongs no matter what those wrongs are. And so my question to you, church, is are you walking in the light when it comes to loving your brothers and sisters? despite their issues. Turn on the lights for me. There is a verse in 1 John chapter 5, and again, if, you have, if you've read and did the High Five Challenge, you'll know what it says. Because the question begs itself in that scenario that I just painted, what do you do in the place where you see a brother or sister in sin. What do we do? What's our response supposed to be? Well, 1 John chapter 5 tells us exactly what we're supposed to do. 1 John 5, 16 says this, if you see any brother or sister commit a sin that does not lead to death, 
you should pray and God will give them life. I'm gonna, I, I want you to see it. If you see any brother or sister commit a sin that does not lead to death, you should pray and God would give them life. But when we read this scripture, what we see is if you see any brother or sister commit a sin that doesn't lead to death, you should go and confront them about that sin and tell them how bad they are. If you see your brother or sister sin, you should go to them and you should make sure that they're aware that there's a glaring issue in their life. My corridor and my door opened up to speak to my friend about their issue at the moment of their fall because he reached out to me because of the way I loved him. Not because I had a Bible that I could beat him up with the minute I found out he had an issue in his life. It is the job of the Holy Spirit to change people's lives. It is the job of the Holy Spirit to change people's lives. The Pharisees were consistently out trying to make sure everybody followed the rules. There was no margin of grace. There was no margin of love. There was no, you better get your act together or you're not going to make it. And Jesus came to revolutionize that idea as the sacrificial lamb, the only perfect one. John tells us that we are not to love anything in the world. We are not to love anything in the world. We are called not to hate the sinner, but to hate the sin. We are not to love the systems of the world and the things that that are created in the world, the evil in the world. We're not to love any of that, but we sure are to love people. We sure are to love, love, love people. Sin is derived from three places, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And you can insert any issue you're struggling with and tie it back to one of those three things. And we are to hate those things. We're not even supposed to love them a little bit. We're supposed to hate them all the way. But we hate the sin and not the people. The same John who pins this letter also pins a story in John chapter eight. At the top of John chapter eight, Jesus is talking to uh, a big gathering of people. And the, the leaders, they draw out this woman. And they pull this woman out. And they go to Jesus and they say, Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. What say you? Should she be stoned? And Jesus kneels down and he writes something on the ground. And they continue to question him. And Jesus says, as he stands, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. Let he who is without sin cast the first stone. What must have John been feeling at that moment? To know that they had every right to stone this woman for what she had done. And Jesus's response comes across as the only one who actually had the right to pick up a stone and throw it. 
Do you realize that when he bent down to write in the ground, that would be the posture to pick up a stone, but instead he wrote down, and I tend to believe it's not in the word, I tend to believe that he wrote her name. Because I believe that in that moment, he wanted to convey, I see you, not your issue, not your sin. And if you notice in the scripture in verse six, they say that they asked this question of Jesus in order to trap him. You see, it's not really about caring about the sin. It's really about the Pharisees needing to not have somebody steal their light. And I wonder how many times we get in a self-righteous posture, not wanting others to steal our light, to steal our platform. Jesus was the only one who could cast the stone and he chose not to. And one by one, the people start to drop the stones. I can just wonder what John was feeling as he stood there and experienced this God and all of these people dropping stones. It must have been a jaw dropping moment. Everyone in this room has an issue. Some of you have more than one. We all have issues, but guys, we are not called to gather here and take a stand on the latest and greatest issues that the culture throws at us. Rather, we are called to surrender to a king who has an answer to them all. We believe here at Springhouse what this word says. We believe everything that is written here. And every one of the issues that you struggle with, there's something to be said in this word about it. And I believe that this word leads to life and it leads to life abundantly. But I also need you to know that as long as I have the privilege to serve as lead pastor of Springhouse Church, we will never elevate issue and sin above the redeeming grace, love, and power of Jesus Christ. When we come into this place, we magnify and exalt his name, not the name of our sin or our issues. And as we do that, we are built up in love and we are equipped to go out and show others the love of the king. And as we show the love of the king, then people are drawn in. I want every one of you to pick up your stone right now and I want you to hold it in the air. Now look around the room. The church was never meant to look like this. The church was never meant to look like this. And the same thing that keeps them from coming in here is the same thing that keeps us doing this. And that's fear. That's fear. But perfect love drives out all fear. What if they come in here and sit on the front row? What if they come and we actually get in relationship with them. What happens then? What happens if somebody who doesn't think like we do, look like we do, smell like we do, act like we do, what if they come in here and lift their hands to this creator? What then? What then? Maybe, just maybe, the God of all grace and reconciliation and power might grab a hold of their life and change them the same way he changed you. Yeah. I want 
want this place in our lives to be a beacon of light to a dying, dark world. And in order to be a beacon of light, we've got to be in the light, guys. And the word tells us we're not in the light if we hate our brothers and sisters. And so God's big idea is that everyone have a way is that everyone has an opportunity to receive this grace. Is that no one is exempt, no matter how much they're in the muck or in the mire. And our command and our commission and our directive is to love them where they are. What would it look like if we began to see people like he sees them? What would it look like if we would begin to confer dignity to people? And when we looked at people, we didn't see their issue above them as a person, as a human being, that we would not reduce them like the Gnostic Gnostic church did and said, everything that's matter is evil. Everything that is human is, 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 is inherently evil. And there is no way to get to this God. What if we stop treating people that way and we actually believe what the word of God says? And instead of this being a book of wrongs, this be a book of good news, of hope, of life everlasting. Would you stand with me this morning? You have an opportunity this morning and I've got to join you because I'm guilty. I'm guilty. If you are a Christian in this place, you have had to contend with the word repentance. And repentance simply means changing the way that you think. And I'm challenging you this morning with an act of repentance that we, representing ourselves, Springhouse and the church at large, would come and we would cast our stones down as an act of repentance to say, Lord, I'm changing the way I think of the people that I walk with, the people that I work with, the people I go to school with. I'm changing the way I think and I'm asking you, God, to give me eyes like you have eyes for them, that I'm able to see beyond their issues, that I'm able to to see beyond their badness and I'm able to see them and hopefully, maybe, Lord, you might use me to love them enough that your Holy Spirit could come in and do a powerful work in their lives. And so I wanna invite you today. Some of you are here today and you have been believing for somebody who has not come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. And they haven't stepped foot into a church because of the way Christians treat them. But I'm inviting us today to lay down these stones. And if that's you today, I want to personally apologize for the way that I have treated those who have had issues and acted like I didn't have issues. And I need your, I ask you for your forgiveness. And I want the Lord to revolutionize the way I think to change the way I think, and that I would be a beacon of hope and love, an agent of grace, so that the Holy Spirit could do his work. And so today, I lay my stone at the altar, and I say, God, change me, change me. And if that is you today, I invite you as we worship to come and lay your stone at the altar. And if you're believing for someone, then you stay a little longer, and you do what the scripture says. You pray, so that God can give them life. You understand? Let's worship.
Jesus, Jesus, 